Hello again, all my gorgeous listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another bonus episode of the Glow West podcast, where we chat all about the wonders of sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, me with the sex podcast. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack to help keep the mics up and running. Or if you want, please swap over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, the Twitter and Instagram is at Glow West Podcast. So today I have an extra special bonus episode to celebrate the release today of a fantastic new book. It kind of dispels a lot of those myths that we have around the 60s, the swinging 60s, the super liberated, the Austin Powers style 60s where everyone had the pill and everyone had a great time having all this great unattached sex and everything was wonderful. But my guest today is here to kind of burst that bubble just a little bit, um, not in a depressing way, but because that wasn't really the reality of what was actually going on for most people. So my guest today is Peter Doggett, who has been writing about popular music and social and cultural history for more than 30 years. His books include the acclaimed Electric Shock, From the Gramophone to the iPhone, 125 Years of Pop Music. There's a riot going on, revolutionaries, rock stars and the rise and fall of 60s counterculture and the man who sold the world David Bowie and the 1970s and today we're talk we're here to talk about the release of his brand new book out today which is called Growing Up which is all about sex and the six sex in the 60s should I say Peter thanks Emil for joining me happy launch day <laughs> thanks very much Caroline very pleased to be here no worries so you are you're a dedicated um writer in this kind of area pop music is your thing it certainly was my thing when I started out. For a long time, I was a music journalist um, and I was writing books of rock history as much as anything else, I suppose, over the last sort of 20, 25 years. And the further you delve back into the music, the, the further you get into the culture as well. And so I was aware, having been a child in the 60s, a teenager in the 70s, I mean, I grew up in the aftermath of 60s culture with this sort of vision over my shoulder of all the great things I missed. Um, and so I've, I, I, I suppose I, I've dived into that myth for a lot of my career, but the older I've got, the more sort of critical I've been when I've come to look back at it. And uh, I mean, at, at the most basic level, the, the, the kind of freedom and excite, excitement and hedonism that everybody thinks about, um, that actually came to only very, very few people, certainly in, in Europe in the 1960s. Um, you, you really had to be a friend of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones to be experiencing that kind of thing. Um, I mean, in terms of free love and so on, that was very much more a 70s thing. But the philosophy came out of the 60s. And, and so, as you said earlier, the myth has grown up that everybody was just having fabulous sex for the whole decade. Yeah, um, definitely not the case in Ireland anyway. Um, very much so. I think we miss that kind of glamorous 60s kind of approach or 70s or 80s or 90s or uh, <laughs> any more of it but so so talk to us through so so the book kind of really it does that deep dive into why the 60s were not quite as glamorous but it really starts off it, it's now like heads up for the readers like there is a lot of depressing stuff and a lot of exploitation of women which I don't think is any surprise to a lot of us but the book talks about um essentially how a lot of young girls were really quite sexualized very early on you start off with Bridget Bardot and my memories of Bridget Bardot would be like this super glam French um 
you know, like total sex symbol kind of thing. But I didn't realize that she actually became famous at around 11 and was being sexualized since then, which, you know, is very disturbing nowadays to be sexualizing an 11 year old. It, uh, absolutely. I mean, in, in her case, from a very early age, she, she had what we would now call mental health issues. She was constantly, when she was a young woman, trying to kill herself whilst trying to keep at the same time keep up the veneer of this ultra sexual image. Um, so there's absolutely no doubt she was exploited by people around her. But at the same time, around 1964, when I guess she was, on, oh, I can't do the maths, <laughs> but she, she would have been in, uh, around 30, that sort of age, I think. Um, she, she started reading Simone de Beauvoir, The Second Sex, and um, that opened her mind to what had been happening to her. And so in interviews, she would, she would stop playing the role of the sex kitten, awful phrase, which was how she was, she was portrayed up to that point, and would start to talk about um, feeling liberated to enjoy her own sexuality. But it's interesting, it was only four or five years after that that she more or less retired as an actress and uh, stood right back and said, no, I've had enough of that. I mean, I don't blame her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like she, she was denounced by the Pope, but then lauded in other areas as this right, real um, sex kitten, like you said. That's such a weird phrase sometimes. Um, but so then it's really hard to exist. And you have a phrase in the book where she said she was treated as a body rather than a victim, really. And that kind of class of, of children, I suppose, would have been the same. Um, absolutely. I mean, and one of, one of the other sad, great themes of 60s sexuality is S&M, violence towards women. And I mean, taken to its ultimate, um, you're, not, you're not just talking about re reducing a woman to a body, you're talking about reducing her to a piece of meat. And that, that kind of sort of com complete denigration of the woman um, as any kind of rounded uh, individual human being even, um, it's so common all the way through the 60s. Um, in fact, let me tell you where the book started. Um, you'll know, of course, that a few years ago, it seemed as if ev every celebrity from Britain um, of a certain age, I mean, in their 70s and 80s, was suddenly being charged with historical sex abuse. And the question that my wife and I kept saying was, why is nobody asking why this happened? And I realised that I'm not um, intelligent enough or well qualified enough to answer that question. I mean, you need to be a have all sorts of you know PhDs in sociology and psychology and sexology or whatever, but I could at least answer the uh, the question: How did it happen? And the more I looked at the nineteen sixties, the more I realised that this was the decade when um, youth was being lauded, everything youthful was exciting and new and vibrant, and at the same time. The, the sort of walls of censorship were being dropped. And so people from older generations were able to sort of prey on that youthfulness and exploit it. And, and they did in many, many, many ways. I mean, you had, you know, you also write about the impact of Lolita um, just going back before, I suppose, the, the, the rock stars and the groupie kind of approach. Like Lolita is like the story of a 12 year old, basically, but it became this huge cultural touchstone of like, this is great literature. So talk us through, well, if, if you don't mind, a quick synopsis of what Lolita is, but how that was received in our culture and how that became like iconic for some people, which seems weird nowadays, which should be weird. 
It is. I mean, if, if that book came out now, it, it would not be received in the no. same way at all. I mean, it was fantastically shocking when it when it appeared in the 50s, but that's more for its explicit sexual um, depiction rather than because at its heart, the book is about um, a young middle-aged man um, having a sexual relationship, as you say, with, with a 12-year-old girl who's actually his stepdaughter. And... What's interesting is that is that the author Vladimir Nabokov had been exploring that theme in his writings, published and unpublished, right back in the nineteen twenties, when he he also was in his twenties, and he continued exploring, mining that same tired theme, right up to when he died in the nineteen seventies, and somehow his reputation as um, one of one of the most creative and um, um, how can I describe it, verbally brilliant writers of the 20th century, has escaped that sort of um, being tarred by the fact that almost everything he wrote was about the fantastic sexual attraction to him of 12-year-old girls, ultimately. Kind of um, an important piece of the puzzle there. You would have thought so. Anyway, the, the, the book was published in France in English in 1955, and then in America, and then in 1959 in Britain. And it was, I hate to think about Ireland. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I suspect it might have been banned, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it became a real cause celeb. Um, now, all of that I knew before I started my research. What I hadn't realised was that as soon as that book comes out in 59, um, the British media are completely open to any, any depiction, apart from visual, but any, any verbal de- depiction of... Um, teenage and pre-teenage girls as being objects of sexual desire. And the, so there are endless stories in the papers about girls of 11 and 12 who've been leading astray, these poor middle-aged men who just couldn't restrain themselves but with these sirens. I mean, at one point in the book, I talk about, there was a court case, I, I can't remember whether it was 1959 or 1960, but there were, um, there was a man of 70, a group of teenage boys and a group of teenage girls at a school who were organising a sex club, basically. Now, the youngest of the girls were nine and ten, and they were being exploited by the older teenage boys and by the, the man who was about 70. And what happens? Well, the man who's 70, amazingly, for the 1960s, does actually go to prison for a couple of years. The boys are fine, they don't get any punishment at all. And the girls are all sent to approved schools. And you're just going, because it's their fault, you know, because they're women, they're eight or nine, they're obviously very highly sexually charged and therefore, oh, it must be their fault. And that theme gets repeated openly all the way through the decade. It's incredible. It's um, it's just so disgusting to see, see that and also to realise Uh, things haven't actually changed all that much in some cases like that victim blaming aspect is still massively there and you actually have like a really fairly horrific quote about victim blaming so this was um you know the victim blaming is so rampant and you say um some Sharon Tate actually the actress had a miniskirt that she bought in London and she got a ticket for indecent exposure in Italy um because it was four inches above the knee 
But um, you say by 1967, police in Paris and London London were warning that the miniskirt was effectively an invitation to rape. Even without revealing their breasts or genitals, women were clearly posing intolerable strain upon the male of the species. So if that isn't victim blaming in a nutshell, I, I don't know what is. But that like there just seems to be this like weird space of like children are sexualized and our clothes are sexualized and everything about the woman is sexualized but men just get a complete pass in all of this situation (laughs) absolutely and that's the world I grew up grew up in Mm. that's the world I inherited from my parents I mean my parents weren't exploiting and abusing young women but I mean that is the world that their generation passed on to me because one of the things that struck me and it's such an obvious thing but it took me quite a while to see it was that uh, ultra conservatives always talk about the sins of the 1960s um, as if it was the 1960s that led everybody astray into this sort of maelstrom of immorality and uh, sin the big sexual sins of the 1960s were actually being committed by the generation before who were preying on the children and the teenagers of the 1960s. Um, and so when, when I when I realized that it was like it was like a light bulb moment that oh okay, that's the real 60s culture that was immoral. It wasn't the the people trying to express themselves sexually or find new avenues of sexual expression. It was, the people who saw their budding sexuality and leapt on it and thought, oh, we can exploit that either financially or just physically. Yeah, and that that's that's such a really good point of, you know, if you think of all the young people who flocked to, you know, San Francisco and the hippie world and, you know, thought they'd have this great time exploring their sexuality with each other. And obviously they did in some cases. But like you said, it was the previous generation. So it was like older men um, shooting the porn of these girls and enticing them into, you know, take part in, in the you know, exploding porn industry as well, not not exploding um, chemical wise, but exploding in popularity and um, levels of consumerism um, like that. That was all obviously a different generation there. And there's still that huge gap between the actress and the director in those cases. Uh, yes, uh, uh, absolutely. And the, and the thing about the 60s is, is the first time that all this is explicit. I mean, it's not a surprise to discover that men are misogynist often. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody is going to die of shock if they discover no. <laughs> that. Or that there has been a, you know, a little bit of sexual discrimination against women over the last, hmm, however many Yeah, insert time years. here. <laughs> yeah. But the difference about the 60s was that it was thrown into people's faces because it was the first decade where sex could be depicted on the screen with any kind of... Um, realism um, in any kind of detail I mean you, um, and as I say it was all it was also the, the 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 dawn of youth culture really becoming the sort of dominant theme in in global culture and so those two things combined to, to ensure that um, not only were women being exploited but that the world could see them being exploited and so what happened after that well it just got worse yeah and and you know the the 70s were you know the golden age of porn but that was a very short time period where there was like a bit of glamour shall we say and then there was quite a lot of um expectation exploitation to go along with that but there were there was a backlash to that so talk us through the work of a delightful man called charles keating and i'm saying that very ironically because this guy um yeah wouldn't 
he'd be a friend of Trump, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he 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 is the the, the absolutely archetypal archetypal American, clean white teeth, perfect haircut, um, perfect family, blonde daughters. I mean, you know, what's not to love? And he formed an organization uh, which ended up being called the Citizens for Decent Literature. And he, 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 he was a businessman in Cincinnati. And from the mid fifties onwards, he went around America and across America and up and down America, preaching the evils of um, cheap magazines and, and pornography. And apparently in every town he would, he would turn up, he would go to a bookstore or a newsstand and he would buy all the rudest and nastiest magazines he could find. And then he would give a, um, a public lecture and show them off to people and say, look at the porn I found in your city. And of course, at the same time, he was a hypocrite and um, he ended up in all, all, all kinds of financial irregularity and... Um, Scamming pensioners out of their, <laughs> their pensions. Exactly. Yeah. But in, 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 I, I, there's a chapter in the book about him um, in comparison with Mary Whitehouse, who was operating in a similar kind of field in Britain in the 1960s. Certainly any anybody in Britain um, who is over the age of, I don't know, 35, will have very clear memory of Mrs. Whitehouse as, as the bastion of conservatism and the person who was most shocked by every outrageous thing. And she, like Keating, was prone to being outraged by things she hadn't seen yet. But fundamentally, both of them, for despite their conservatism, which I sort of rail against instinctively, um, they started out from a situation of wanting to protect young people. And in, in, in the case of Mary Whitehouse, particularly, she had been a school teacher of teenage girls, and it had been her job to, to, to look after the sexual education of these girls in the early 60s. And she could, she could never forget um, how upset some of the sort of 12, 13, 14 year old girls were who came to her saying, look, we started to get sexual feelings. We don't know how to handle, handle them. We don't know what to do with them. And boy is the same, boys feeling that they were being pushed into doing things that they didn't necessarily want to do. So in the case of Mrs. Whitehouse, at least, if not Charles Keating, um, at the back of everything, she did have that sort of um, the, her ex-pupils in mind, you know. Um, so she she was on a conservative crusade, but ultimately she wanted to preserve children's happiness rather than just sort of <laughs> campaign against every yeah, bit of exactly. pleasure going. And 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 she did have that that point, I suppose, of like maybe today she would be called a feminist of sorts or something and but Keating didn't come across as that he was just like let's not have any sex kind of thing it wasn't necessarily like oh this is exploitation of women he just didn't want to see sex on the screen so to speak but like a lot of the porn at that stage like it did feature underage people like children like let's call, call a spade a spade yeah um, I'm sure yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean to, to, to just just in, in Charles Keating's defence, though, which is not something I thought I was going to be saying, I found a quote from him in 1970 where he says, the exploitation of women as sexual objects and playthings for men, as portrayed in some of the mass media, is revolting and harmful to our society. And I say, well, that could have come from the pages of a feminist journal mm -hmm. in 1970 or today as well. So there was that sort of chink of common sense at the heart of what he was doing, but it got 
twisted into a sort of conservative crusade yeah as 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 you would do when you have all those other statements going along as well but he also collected i know you said he bought some of those imagery but um he he bought images featuring children and had that in his office to to prove this existence of this stuff but like I, i just can't imagine like wanting that kind of content in your house but um even yeah, if you're well, campaigning I mean, against it yeah i think i think at some point in the book i say he must have had a world a world class collection of pornography <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if he was going around 100 days a year uh, you know to newsstands buying porn i mean he must have had it all he must have been supporting the market single-handedly at that stage <laughs> as well like so yeah it, it's it's definitely an interesting era and i know obviously um you know um the, the commercialization i suppose of of porn really kind of started taking off because you had the rise of of playboy and porn becoming like feature length and you know like the glamour age and and things like um deep throat coming out in 1972 which really kind of glamorized porn so to speak but you also had like a weird thing of like pubic hair so pubic hair became the marker for obscenity and there's something in that as well about um pubescent bodies and stuff but do you want to talk us through how pubic hair became a very public conversation about what is and what isn't obscene yeah because the, the, there were two things happening here which which was first of all um in porn magazines and the likes of playboy and so on any suggestion of pubic hair or indeed that women might have had genitals was airbrushed out because that was too obscene to see so you could see breasts no problem but um, if, even in a magazine like Playboy or the, the equivalents in Britain, Penthouse, Mayfair, there was no pubic hair in the 1960s. Um, at the same time, you had, um, I, I, I single out the photographer Gene Straker, I think that was how he pronounced his name, um, who he specialised in, in, in taking nude photographs. He actually worked for the Ministry of Health, I think, in taking photographs of parts of people's body to help train doctors. But he also um, loved, like so many men, to take photographs of new women. But he insisted on showing their genitals and their pubic hair because he said, they've got them. <laughs> it's all very well, the, the censors saying, no, no, nobody else has got these things. It's only that woman, we must cover it up. And he said, truth, honesty, artistry, that's what it's all about. And every time he tried to show one of those images in public in the 1960s, he would get busted by the police. And so he ended up, he, he stopped taking photography. Uh, he ended up by stopping his photography completely and um, concentrating on his lifelong battle against censorship, which was a shame from the artistic point of view. But I mean, it was such an obvious point. Um, and then in the 1970s, as I'm sure you know, suddenly it's okay in Playboy and so whatever to, to show pubic hair. And then, you know, we fast forward five decades and suddenly, thanks to porn in the internet age, women aren't supposed to have pubic hair again. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a weird pubic hair uh, cycle. <laughs> goes around yeah absolutely and i think yeah the the, the fashions definitely of, of pubic hair have definitely changed um a, a lot i suppose but but even like there there is something just about you know that refusal to show women as women and you know grown adults and stuff and like you were saying earlier it's not you're not there to understand the why of of the rise of groupies and and you know that that abuse but like the how of it and you can see how 
everything you've talked about so far is laying the groundwork for things like groupies and rock bands and all that exploitation of the 60s and going in going forward from the 70s like it's just it's it's like almost like a perfect storm that laid the foundation for that to be acceptable for um rock bands to be sleeping with children yeah i mean i've i've, I've got no idea going back if you went back 200 years ago who who were the celebrities that you know that who who were the celebrities of the 1700s and 1800s and would they have had young women clamoring outside their door? Well, maybe if they were Shelley and Byron, they might have done. I don't maybe. know. They're probably in the same way. But once fame becomes a commodity that can be marketed um, through the mass media, so really from the sort of early early era of Hollywood, I suppose, you know, Rudolph Valentino and the rest, these icons, male icons appear, film stars, pop stars, whatever, and they are presented as sex symbols. And so it is only natural that lots and lots of young women find these sex symbols attractive. Um, and then, yeah, so you, so from that point onwards, if a Frank Sinatra or a Bing Crosby is appearing in public in the 1930s, there are young women outside their stage door. Now, I've no idea what those young women wanted or expected, but they were drawn to these figures. And um, certainly by the time you get to the 1950s, um, and rock music, rock and roll music, it's much more overtly sexual than the music that had gone before. Mm. And so from that point onwards, sex and pop are effectively the same thing. I mean, the whole, almost the whole point of pop is sex. It's either to, exp to make people want to have sex with each other or to want to have sex with the pop stars. Um, and the, the, the problem is often the pop stars are, particularly in the 60s, are young men of 16, 18, 20, early 20s, at a time when there's no sexual education, there's no education about um, emotions or anything. And all they know is they've, they've got a parade of thousands of girls from whom they can choose anybody they want to take back to the dressing room. And so every so often people talk about, oh, in the 70s, there were, there were underage groupies. Well, there were, and some of them became very famous and had very sad lives. Um, but way before that, I, I would think almost every pop star must at some point have had at least the opportunity of sleeping with an underage girl because it was on permanent offer and nobody thought it was there was anything wrong in it. The girls um, may not have been expected exactly what they got because they probably were quite naive in, um, in what they thought they were offering and the boys probably didn't get a very good experience out of it either sexually but it was sort of on tap um, and it's only really post 1970s that people have started to look back and go oh maybe there was a problem with that yeah it was just so, it just seemed to be like this cool thing of rock and roll that you had I mean it was a Sable star who became this like celebrity groupie and and met a whole bunch of them and um like that gave her like enormous social capital to be this like famous rock groupie but even I suppose if we, if we even take it back a little bit um you speak about you know in the, the 50s and 60s like the proliferation of like May to December romance films which is essentially like older men falling in love with like 14 15 year olds and obviously we look differently on that now but that was they were viewed as romance films back then so we're, we're still in that phase of older man and child 
Um, yeah, and I think we, we're always in that in, in that phase. That's the awful thing. I mean, when it, it's so rare for a, for a Hollywood star, not only in their private life but also in their in their public life, for a man to be having any kind of sexual involvement with a woman who's older than him. I mean, that's just outrageous. The idea. So, of course, I mean, nothing personal against these people, but of course, Michael Douglas is going to marry a much younger wife, and on and on and on. Um, so it. It, it has become the normal, natural state of affairs. I mean, pre-60s, I can't remember the name of it, there's a, there's a movie starring Fred Astaire as a really charming man of about 60. And is it Audrey Hepburn that he's um, honing on? Oh no, Leslie Caron, I can't remember what the film's called. But it's a really sweet romantic film until you go, hang on a minute, he's old enough to be her grandfather. And, and yet it's supposed to be pure romance. Um, so yes, in the 60s, that, is, that becomes much more overt. And then by the late 60s, and this is the stuff when I start to remember it, um, there are suddenly a whole raft of films about coming of age, you know, that beautiful, gorgeous moment in a young girl's life when she discovers her budding sexuality and just wants to take all her clothes off at every possible moment she can. And if there's an older man around who could gently... In the, um, in, um, introduce her to the joys of sexuality so much the better and that becomes the sort of standard plot for so many films in the late 60s and early 70s um, and, and that's the cultural model that as I said earlier my generation inherited. Yeah it's, it's, it's like grooming you know it's a, a conscious grooming Absolutely. of the whole public for this to be an acceptable thing and you know so it's no wonder the rock stars had all those experiences because they, they're given a free pass by society who thought this was a normal and b cool yeah um just just as a slight aside from that um i mean the the person who in recent years who has emerged as the, the most criminal criminal of all these exploitative what's the word predatory men is jimmy savile um and I found this amazing thing about him in the magazine Boyfriend from 1962. Now you have to remember girls were less mature in the 60s. So this was a, the kind of paper that would now would be aimed at eight to 11 year olds, but in the 60s was probably aimed at 12 to 16 year olds, something like that. And it had agony aunts and agony uncles who, who were always saying, well, if a boy's trying to have sex with you, it's your fault. You, you must be sending out the wrong signals, you know, that kind oh, of thing. Yikes. But um, okay. there's a, pro, a profile of Jimmy Savile in 1962. So this is pre-Top of the Pops. He's a sort of cult hero DJ at this point, but he's not on the BBC yet, but uh, he's starting to become known. And this is what it says about Jimmy Savile. The rights of man, according to Jimmy Savile, are being able to do what you like when you feel like it and without offering explanations. If you can get away with it. And Jimmy Savile can. Oh, Jesus. Like, so you, how much more obvious does it have to oh be? I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? That, so that's okay. Rewind there. That's a quote from Jimmy Savile basically admitting to being a pedophile, but in a right. magazine that's aimed at 12 year olds to talk about how boys want to have sex with them and it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. These are like to children. I how, know. Like, Oh my god! <laughs> like, okay, I'm glad that magazine is not around anymore. But that's just one of the things. But like, so it's like it's like how on earth do you grow up in any kind of like 
safe protected environment when that kind of content is out there and accepted and normalized yeah because you not only want to be safe you also want to become an adult and a, a mature sexually uh, open and active adult and so there's this pull the whole time through the 1960s between women should cover themselves up restrain themselves they're an evil influence on poor innocent men and also you've got to express yourself and you've got to discover your clitoris and you've got to have the most fantastic orgasms but make sure they're the right kind of orgasms otherwise it's your fault oh, it's like it just yeah you can see how that is a toxic mix um of misogyny and just everything everything kind of horrible but like was there any backlash like to the fact like i'm sure that this was public knowledge that these rock stars were you know having sex with children and like like was there any backlash in any of the media or cultural um approaches to this um i can answer that very simply no mm. i was, ho I was hoping you weren't gonna say that but i also expected it, you to it, say that it happened and nobody talked about it. Um, I mean, almost the first person to mention it, not in terms of underage girls, but just in terms of having sex willy-nilly with fans, was John Lennon. He gave a huge interview in 1970 to Rolling Stone magazine in which he more or less tried to completely demolish every everything mythical about the Beatles. And he was talking about the orgies they had and how the press never wrote about it because the press were in on the orgies and the girls that couldn't get a beetle or a beetle roadie or a beetle manager would go oh okay well what you've met one of the fab four okay i'll have sex with you instead and so it was in everybody every man's interest to keep it quiet well, it's, a, it's always a circle isn't it it's it's like enablers and um all the people who benefit from, from, from that exploitation kind of going i mean like like if you look back there's so many stories about it but like i remember steven tyler from aerosmith like he got guardianship of a child to traffic her across state lines to have sex with her and then only it was only a couple of years ago that he was actually opening a woman's shelter like a refuge and we're kind of going hang on a sec <laughs> like are we not like he's still alive and we're nobody seems to really bring that up a whole bunch yeah, I mean the the only the only person who got um, convicted, any rock star who got convicted for carrying young, young girls across um, the state lines in America was was Chuck Berry, and that was because he was black and the girl yeah. was white. Yeah, Otherwise, he would be fine. Yeah. He would have got away with it as well. Yeah. Um, no, I suppose in his case, I, I I I confess I didn't know about the women's refuge. You have mm. to say, well, fantastic. He's made that journey. He's at least prepared in old age to acknowledge that maybe what he did way back when uh, and other people like him has had consequences but uh, I would hope so unless it was yeah. just a PR stunt but um yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't give him too much grace I suppose no. in, in that aspect but even like what was your man's name from the Rolling Stones is a Bill Wyman he married a 13 year old didn't he he did uh, yes I mean obviously she wasn't 13 when he married her but yeah, yeah he was openly having a relationship with her from from that age um and was celebrated for it and this this was the, the thing maybe not expressed this way in the 60s but certainly in the 70s 80s 90s the thing among men would be if you were 35 and had managed to managed to have a 
I was going to say relationship. If, if you if you managed to get off with a 16 year old girl, it wouldn't be, oh my goodness, you know, what about the inequality? What about, aren't you exploiting her? It would be good on you, mate. Well done. Wow. You lucky, you lucky so-and-so, you know? So. Yeah. Which is, um, hasn't changed uh, that much in some particular areas as well. I mean, like after writing this book, you know, you know, you, it's, it's been a long project. It's been six years with other books in between. You are a very busy person. Like so the 60s and all that kind of rock history and cultural history and stuff. Like, do you see many changes now that that, you know, in direct um I suppose contradiction to how we viewed people, how we viewed young girls, especially back in those days. Or do you kind of see the same? Because sometimes it feels like the music industry hasn't really changed all that much. Um, it's just just in terms of the music industry. I've, I'm, of course, the exploitation is still there, but it's much more subtle. And it's usually done with the woman's consent in inverted commas. Um, when I wrote my my book six seven years ago electric shock about the history of music i i found a quote from christina aguilera and it's sorry to it, it's tough to pick on her particularly but she she when she was 18 year old 18 years old she was interviewed and she said something along the lines of i'm not going to be one of those women who's posing all the time in a skimpy bikini etc you know because that's offering the wrong kind of image to my fans i don't want to do that three years later she is doing exactly that now she probably chose that or was she pushed towards it by male management i don't know she i'm sure would say it was her independent choice but it, i remember feeling very uncomfortable about, about that at the time mm. um, yeah i remember that because she was um when she's promoting was it stripped and she just was in that black and yellow bikini and i remember and, and chaps and i remember that watching it on like seven in the morning on what was it uh, the not the big breakfast the one with denise van outen that was, was it the big breakfast um the tv show and i was like she's it's very early to be uh <laughs> in your bikini and your back on, yeah yeah it was like pretty no. early but even now we can see like you know the story of kesha and how like you know her well, I suppose we have to say alleged um, allegations against her manager, um, but lots of younger or other female, young female artists saying, I don't want to work with that guy, that producer, but I kind of have to because that's what my contract says. And they're all locked into these like extremely, you know, ironclad contracts that are really quite exploitative. I mean, I think Kesha's one was like when she was a teenager, she got signed for some huge like eight album deal or something, you know, that that doesn't give you like any kind of freedom or anything like that like it feels like it's like legal exploit exploitation but in different ways now yeah i mean legal exploitation has, has always been at the heart of the music business whether it's sexual or not um and so young young male stars are exploited they're, they're maybe not exploited sexually by their record companies or managers but they they will still be you know they will end up the victims with much less than they thought they were going to get but no, I mean, what you've basically described is the casting couch, isn't it? It's the classic Hollywood casting couch. Um, but have things changed for the better? I mean, moving beyond the, the, the music business, um, yes, they have to the extent that young women are routinely much more aware of their own bodies, their own sexuality. They're free to choose their sexual identity in a way that they weren't probably in the 1960s or much more difficult to do so. Um, but in terms of the pressures on them, I mean, the objectification of um, women 
is that any less now than it was in the 60s? I would possibly argue that it's more, it's more explicit now. It's in every advertisement. Um, it's yeah. still on every billboard. It's still, it, and it becomes so obvious, it's so, sorry, so normal that you just take it all for, all for granted. Yeah, it's um, a lot to pr- try and process as a young person. Yeah, but but then the, the problem I would guess is, and I'm sorry, you, you should be talking about this, not me, but the problem then is how do you escape that without being prudish or or sort of dull or conformist or conservative or whatever? I mean, it's... A, yeah, it's a, it's a fine line. Well, even that quote earlier about, um, you know, the mini skirts and, and about police saying, well, you know, it's your fault if, you, if you're raped because of your clothes. I mean, that was the 60s and that attitude is still there. You know, that victim blaming attitude, we're still focusing on victims clothes. And you know, like you said in the book as well, that like in the 60s, like groupies were viewed as fair game because um, these were like deviant young girls who are putting themselves in those positions about a millionaire or quotes around um, all that. And but we still have that now of like, oh, well, where were you? Well, you shouldn't have been there. You should have been at home. You shouldn't be wearing this. And so th- there's a lot. I mean, how long ago were the 60s now? 70 years. Oh, my gosh, I feel old. Um, but um, there's not a lot changed there. And, and that, that aspect of victim blaming, for sure. No, and the, 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 there was a huge um, fuss in, in, in Britain in October about uh, and, and September about the murder of um, Sarah Everard by a serving police a policeman. I do hope I've got her name right. Yeah, yeah. And obviously in an effort to console the family and to talk about the sadness of the crime, the judge made an offhand comment about she was enti- an entirely blameless victim. And of course, of course she was an entirely blameless victim. But by saying that, in 2021 he is also saying oh but some female murder victims well it's their fault yeah yeah implies there is there is blame i remember yeah yeah, in that case it was like you know she she did all the right things she walked home in daylight hours and it's like you you should be able to walk home at five in the morning pissed out of your head with one shoe on like you know your knickers hanging out whatever it doesn't none of that matters it's the choice of the perpetrator to commit sexual violence not the fault of the victim or their clothes but um I think we have a long way to to go when it comes to like challenging I suppose that aspect of victim blaming but I mean, like like you've shown in the book, like all those seeds are there and it's cultural. It's not just one thing. It's not just music. It's not just the law. It's it's everything. You know, it's film and TV and um, the lessons our parents tell us and, you know, all, all those kind of things. It's There's a lot to unpack, but I think your, your book is a really great starting point to understand how we are how we are now in in 2021 so it's kind of like good good homework but depressing homework as well it, it, it is I mean I, I quite deliberately in almost almost every page of the book I didn't draw conclusions I didn't want to bash the reader over the head and say ha ha so now you can see I wanted to give the reader uh, um, the credit enough intelligence for she or he to be able to or they sorry to be able to um draw those conclusions for themselves 
um, but it's pretty bloody obvious. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But it is it is nice to see the context of it and that it's not these things aren't just isolated incidents, you know, that they are there. And, you know, we, we have recently seen the, the conviction of Or Kelly for um, his abuse of women. But it's it's interesting to see that in the context of 70 odd years of how the music industry has operated and treated um, young girls and especially young girls of colour as well because obviously they're more victimised as well um, but yeah depressing look but I think it's really educational and I think like there's so much detail in the book as well that like um, you know like you said you can kind of dip in and out a little bit which I really like because some of these books can be depressing to read all in one go so it is nice to just take a chapter at, um, at a time as well so definitely appreciate you writing it um where can people get a copy as it is your launch day today so um, you're out everywhere um, i would hope every every bookstore it's yeah. published by the bodley head which is part of um, the penguin random house global conglomerate so uh, yeah hopefully distribution will be good yes and uh, just i mean obviously there's lots of shocking lots of very depressing material in the book hopefully some of it is much lighter and um there are moments of humor in there along the way but uh, yeah i i I do hope it's a book that's going to make people just sort of sit up and take notice and go oh my goodness i cannot believe that people got away with that yeah absolutely yeah so not not just the fun austin powers version of the 60s that we yeah. all wish would be the case but um yeah it is interesting to see where that comes from so um brilliant listen peter thanks emil for talking to me it's been such an education and i you know again it's just a massive area that i'm interested in for just the context i suppose or in the history of how we got where we were so it's been great to be reading your book and yeah happy happy launch day and may you sell many many copies that's lovely, Caroline. Thank you very much. Thank you. And absolutely, you know, again, to all my listeners, you know, I'd, I'd definitely urge you to encourage it. It is a really great book. It's huge. It's like about a, not a billion pages long. Uh, it is just under 400 pages, actually. So that is a lot of information there. So it'll keep you going till Christmas anyway. So and as you know, all know in the podcast, I don't recommend books that I haven't read myself and agreed because I don't just randomly take random people on the podcast it's only people that i really kind of value their work so it is a good recommendation there so treat yourself and i will see you next week